Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton, and this is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives. And I think that any of us who have ever thought about our bodies is going to be interested in today's episode with Dr. Stephen Batosh. Dr. Batosh is a leading physician at the Batosh Endoscopic Weight Loss Center. And we're going to be talking about the connection between weight, mental health, and all over physicality. Um, there's been a new class of weight loss medications like Ozempic and Wagovi and lots and lots of um, articles written about the impact that those have, not just on your well-being, but on your long-term health. And so I wanted to get Dr. Batash to weigh in this morning. It's really nice to see you, Dr. Batash. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thank you. Um, your your career has probably changed so dramatically in the past couple of years because of the FDA approval of these drugs. Describe for me how it has changed. Sure. I am a professor of medicine at New York University Medical Center. I've been practicing gastroenterology and liver diseases for the past 30 years. I got into this field approximately seven years ago. I started by doing the uh, intragastric balloons for weight loss. About six to eight months later, I also started doing other endoscopic therapy, uh, endoscopic sleeves, or what we like to call suture sculpts, where we fold your stomach, make it shorter, and make it more narrow. What I found was that uh, these procedures really helped a lot of people who prior to their approval were really not candidates for any kind of therapy. And really, we had nothing to offer these people until the endoscopic therapies, the balloon and the suture sculpt came into being. And these procedures are really, really wonderful. But what they overlook is that when we do these procedures, we only work on the stomach part of the equation. Hmm. But we ignore the brain part of the equation. And in this scenario, it's always the brain that controls everything. It's always the brain that makes the decision on hunger. Uh, There had to be a way to make these procedures better. That better part came in the form of these medications. Yeah. Now, these medications can either help us when we supplement them with the procedures because they affect the brain part of the equation, number one. And number two, they can also help a very large segment of the population that is not willing to undergo any kind of procedures, but just wants some help with medications. And uh, this has been really uh, earth-shattering for this field, because what these medications do is they work in two ways. Number one, they delay the food in your stomach for about six to seven hours, this prolonged sense of And number two, these medications stimulate the satiety centers in the brain, thereby allowing the brain to process the information that is being presented to it from the stomach in real time, not a half an hour later when our indiscretion or our overeating has already happened. 
I, I love that you have brought it back to the brain because it's the very reason that I wanted to speak to you today. I was so shocked to learn the mechanism of ghrelin and leptin in our appetite and how that is a mechanism that is completely different from human to human and that this is the center that these Ozempic and Wagovi are working on. So how do people begin to understand that our brain is making the decision about our appetite, not our stomach? (laughs) The best the stomach can do is to give out a call for help. In other words, it can say, I am full. It can say, uh, I have reached my level of satiety. But until the brain processes this message and gives out a command saying you're no longer hungry, stop eating, you will continue eating even though you know that your stomach is full. I mean, why is it that so many people say, I've eaten my meal, I know that my belly is full, but I'm still hungry, I'm still Uh starving, I want to keep on eating. Well, it's because the brain hasn't processed this information and hasn't given out the command, the stop command, stop eating. Now, the way these hormones work, there's ghrelin, which is the hunger hormone. When the brain perceives that you are in the unfed state, or it perceives that you're utilizing too many calories, essentially the brain responds to the ghrelin or the hunger hormone. The ghrelin hormone is made in the stomach, but the majority of its effect takes place in the brain. And essentially it allows the brain to realize that it is time to eat because You haven't eaten in a while, number one. Number two, you're expending too much energy. And the brain always goes back to the the, stone ages, the caves. So (laughs) the brain is always worried. If I don't eat, I'm going to starve because I don't know when my next meal is going to be. So the brain sees the ghrelin as something that is saving the life. Mm -hmm. All right. So uh, opposing ghrelin is the hormone called leptin. Leptin is uh, made in the fat cells in the body. And essentially, uh, its action is in the brain, not in the fat cells where the hormone is made. It counteracts the ghrelin and says, you are full. There's no reason to eat anymore. Please stop eating. And so do you think, um, this has just caused me to think about so many things that people who have um, obesity issues um, because of overeating have too much ghrelin in their brains, too much of it circulating around, screaming all the time, we're starving, we're starving, when in, in fact, they may have just had a meal? Obesity is very multifactorial. What we're discussing today is a small part of the overall bigger picture. Ghrelin is not just about eating. Ghrelin is also about, it's part of a circuit between your peripheral body or the stomach, let's say, and the fat cells and the brain. This is all one circuit. And this circuit controls not just our eating behavior, but it also controls our emotional states. What the heck am I talking about? Well, it's very well known that in people who have depression, the levels of ghrelin are elevated. 
Mm. There's intense debate in the community. What does this mean in the nutritional community? One way to approach this is to blame ghrelin for making you depressed. That's one way of looking at it. Uh, the other way of looking at it is when we have issues with our emotional states, when we are depressed, ghrelin comes to the rescue. Because when people are depressed, we find that their ghrelin levels are highly elevated. Some people think that the ghrelin, the high levels of ghrelin, have an antidepressant effect. In other words, they make the depression less severe. So it's almost like taking an antidepressant medication. For example, it's well known that ghrelin decreases brain inflammation. There have been some recent articles showing that perhaps obesity is somehow related to brain inflammation. Mm -hmm. uh, and ghrelin is a well-known hormone which down-regulates inflammatory mediators in the body. And that perhaps that's one of the ways that it helps the depression be, uh, you know, alleviated. It makes perfect sense to me because when you hear people who are in a depressed state talk about their cravings, it's all things with really high carbohydrate content, things that are going to give that feeling of satiety and that feeling of well-being, even though it's not necessarily good for them in the long run, they are looking for a positive fix for their hormonal level and their brain function. Absolutely. Uh, the other thing that we know, ghrelin acts on the reward and motivation parts of the brain. So for example, it's a very well-known fact that uh, ghrelin decreases the amount of cocaine that someone needs to use to feel that euphoric effect. Wow. Uh, it decreases the amount of alcohol that you need to take. So essentially what it does is it makes the depression less. It yeah. brings the levels down because it allows you to enjoy life. And most of the people who are depressed, they have anhedonia. They just cannot feel any pleasure or accept any pleasure from anything, no matter how pleasurable it is. So I'd like to talk about the mechanisms of these weight loss drugs, but for people that want to mimic what these are doing, are there any cognitive behavioral therapy tools, any mindfulness tools that we can get to get the brain under control into mimicking what it is that Ozempic and Wagovi are doing so that you can go into that beautiful, natural state of well-being? Unfortunately, the answer is no. There isn't a pill that we can take that mimics the effects of ghrelin or leptin, or at least not yet. Hopefully down the road there will be, and I think it will be sooner rather than later. Let's uh, just very briefly look at the mechanism of leptin. I think there are many studies that now show that people who are depressed have very high leptin levels. Now, you would think that if you have a high leptin level, you're never going to eat because you're always going to have the sensation of fullness or satiety. But that's not the case. The reason the levels of leptin are so high is because the body has developed a resistance to the effect of leptin. And therefore, you never feel satiated. You are always hungry. Leptin is well known to decrease symptoms of depression 
And it also has an anxiolytic property. In other words, it uh, reduces stress. So most people who are depressed have very high leptin levels, but the leptin doesn't work because there's a resistance that's been developed to the leptin, and therefore the depression gets worse because you don't have leptin coming in to help you out. So these medications, Ozempic or Wigovi, that's essentially the same medication. It has different names because I guess the the people at Novo Nordisk uh, decided that they didn't want a diabetic drug to have the same name as a weight loss drug. The way those medications work is, uh, as I said, by two main mechanisms. One is to decrease the emptying of food from the stomach so your belly stays full much longer. So, you know, essentially the way our bodies are wired together, when we eat, when our belly is full, we are happy. As soon as the food leaves the stomach, we're hungry again. That's how our brain is wired. So uh, what this medication does is it allows the food to stay in your stomach for six or seven hours. So you're happy for six or seven hours instead of just a half an hour. Mm. Number one and number two, affecting the satiety centers in the brain. Now, interestingly, there's the Wigovi, which has one mechanism by which it stimulates the satiety centers in the brain. There's a newer diabetic medication called Munjaro uh, or Trizepatide. It is already approved for diabetes. It will uh, probably within the next six to eight months, it will be approved for weight loss as well. This medication is a little more potent than the Wigovi because Wigovi acts through the GLP-1 mechanism, whereas the Munjaro acts through the GLP-1 mechanism plus the GIP mechanism. So two is better than one. That's why people that take Munjaro lose more weight. And now uh, there's another medication in the uh, work that that medication is about ready to start phase three trials soon, where it has three mechanisms of action, the GLP-1, the GIP, and the glucagon. And what the preliminary studies have shown is, for example, if Wigovi, the weight loss is, let's say, about 15% of your total body weight, with Munjaro, it's about 20. Uh, With uh, this newer class of drug, it's going to be in the 25% range. I I love the sea change that we're going to make as a nation, too, in in terms of stopping the judgment around obesity, you know, because most people I know who carry extra weight don't eat much more than I do. They don't, you know, it's just a totally different mechanism in their guts and their brains that makes us so completely unique. So I have wondered what a person like yourself feels about this idea about there being a gut brain connection. And that if we do want to take care of our mental health, it has to begin with a good microbiome. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that you cannot escape that there are two parts to this equation and each part has to be satisfied. Is there a pill to take that mimics leptin or ghrelin? No, but there are things that you could do to decrease the level of resistance to leptin. You could sleep more. Many people who have leptin resistance just don't get enough sleep. Unfortunately, I'm one of them. You can decrease your levels of stress by uh, perhaps working a little bit less, enjoying life a little bit more, enjoying your family, 
or just enjoying being by yourself. I mean, that's also important. You know, even if you have a lot of kids, I think every one of us needs a little me time. I think that's important. And the other thing that's important is to really avoid the really highly fatty foods and the processed foods. These are the natural, easier things that we can do to um, improve our microbiome and to decrease leptin uh, resistance, which I think is really, really key. Yeah, I want to talk to people about how they can improve their microbiome because there's such a debate over whether probiotics, prebiotics, um, does it work to eat fermented foods? What, what's your advice to your patients? Uh, what I will tell you is that if you look at the rigorously done studies, most of these studies will show that most of the probiotics or prebiotics uh, have very little effect on improving your health. Mm -hmm. Having said that, I don't really believe these studies. When I read a paper, even, a, even if it comes out from a very prestigious institution, even if it's a randomized controlled trial, even if it's done everything right, I don't look at it as the last word. I look at it as here's some evidence being presented to me, and I, as an educated physician, can make my own decisions. Mm -hmm. So my own decision is that I think that probiotics are extremely helpful, and I recommend to all my patients, whether they are weight loss patients or non-weight loss patients, I think that it's a good idea to take one multivitamin and one good probiotic. You know, there are a lot of probiotics out there that perhaps don't cut it. My favorite probiotic is uh, something that we use in our inflammatory bowel disease patients, people who have ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. They're probably the people whose microbiome is disturbed the most. Uh, it's called VSL number three. And I've had like really, uh, really amazing, amazing results when I supplement my patients with this. There are good ones out there, but not every one of them is good. I think it's fascinating the more that we learn about the connection to disease like inflammatory bowel disease, like inflammatory diseases, even rheumatoid arthritis, some of the Parkinson's disease have big, strong connections to gut imbalances. So do you believe that eventually we're going to find out that the gut is the second brain and that it's so, so important to have it functioning properly to avoid these kind of diseases and illness? So I think uh, that you've made a really very, very important point. Uh, we're not quite there yet, but we are clearly on our way. You know, the FDA recently approved uh, a pill. Essentially, uh, this pill is for patients who have antibiotic-associated diarrhea. And very frequently, we have another antibiotic to treat the antibiotic-related diarrhea. But uh, these antibiotics are not successful in making this diarrhea stop. So now, essentially, what we're doing for these patients is we're doing a fecal, a poop transplant. Yep. So before, let's say, um, if we were having this conversation a year or two ago, the only way to get a fecal transplant would have been to do a colonoscopy, to take poop from somebody else and just sort of sprinkle it throughout your large intestine. Yeah. That's kind of gross. So uh, there was uh, there have been recently a couple of pills that have become available, which you can just take. And that accomplishes the same thing in terms of the uh, good 
bugs that your large intestine uh -huh. needs to work properly. There's also a lot of research going on as far as fecal transplantation goes into patients with uh, irritable bowel syndrome. The preliminary data seems to be very positive that it will help. And there are also a lot of studies being done in patients with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. In other words, it's not just your small intestine that has to have the good microbiome. It's your large intestine also that is very, very important in the normal functioning of many different disease states. I'm so fascinated by especially the transplantation question because it would seem to me that if your microbiome is turning over every 30 to 60 days, sometimes faster, depending upon how quickly things are eliminated, that even if you had a transplant, it would be the effects would be gone within 60 days. What they're seeing is that these effects seem to be longer lasting. Wow. Uh, for the antibiotic associated diarrhea. The indication for the fecal transplant is extremely strong, whereas for irritable bowel and inflammatory bowel disease, we're still fighting it out. But I think the healthier poop is going to win out. Yeah, well, I've always talked to people about, you know, this gut-brain connection from the time I actually saw it in my late husband. He began having really bad stomach problems with terrible digestion, and it precipitated to a lot of his mental health concerns. I mean, if 80% of our serotonin is made in our gut, is that an accurate statistic? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think ah, so. Uh, and I think what, you're, what you have to realize is the way we lead our lives also affects our microbiome. It's not just what we eat. It's how much we sleep, how much stress we have, what kind of food we eat. Do we overdo it with alcohol or not? Yeah. Uh, do we overdo it with drugs? You know, it, it's an ongoing debate. How much antibiotics are we taking in our lives? You know, some people, they'll take antibiotics at the drop of a hat, whether it's indicated or not. So for example, we all know that if somebody has a viral infection, antibiotics aren't going to help you. But unfortunately, a lot of us take them anyway, because we want to get better faster. And we think, well, if this gets me better, uh, you know, uh, a day sooner, it's worth it to me. It may be worth it to you in the short term, but in the long term, it really messes with your gut flora. There have been so many um, discussions about the potential side effects, and we're going to be talking about that with Dr. Patash in part two of our conversation on weight loss, the brain, and how you can impact your mental health through good gut health. That'll be next on Beyond Well.